It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. This is the Fox News Rundown Extra. I'm Dana Perino. Jared Cohen is president of global affairs at Goldman Sachs, a best-selling author of five books and also served as an advisor to two secretaries of state, Condoleezza Rice and Hillary Clinton. I recently spoke to Jared about the ongoing conflicts in the Mideast, the three U.S. soldiers killed in a drone attack in Jordan last weekend, and why he believes Iran is creating a dangerous new normal in the region. The two of us also spoke about his upcoming book, Life After Power, Seven Presidents and Their Search for Purpose Beyond the White House. We made some edits for time and thought you might want to hear the whole thing, especially since there's a lot of great stuff we did not include in our original segment. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the weekly Fox News Rundown podcast. You can also find my podcast, Perino on Politics, every Monday by going to foxnewspodcast.com. Now, here's Jared Cohen on the Fox News Rundown Extra. Jared, it's great to have you, especially on a day when we wish we didn't have the news that we have, but we have the news that we have, and we have you as a guest to help us understand what is happening in the Middle East, especially with these increasing attacks that have now killed three Americans, hurt many others. It was an attack that happened before dawn at sleeping quarters, so intended to have maximum harm and damage to our people. And now you have an administration who is grappling with something that is very big and there's so much concern. So I'd love to get your expertise and con- your thoughts on what's going on. Well, first of all, Dana, thanks for having me. Um, obviously, it's a huge tragedy and this is a line that we did not want to see cross. And I'm not surprised that the administration finds itself in a very difficult position. Um, if you look at Iran and this war in the Middle East since October 7th, they are the only country that has an easy brief. All they have to do is destabilize. And I view them as the short and medium term winner of this war because what they're doing is they're creating a new normal around all their proxy activities. And they're basically blowing through any perception that there's red lines to constrain them. Um, And right now, Iran's getting the benefit of getting to fight Israel and the United States through proxies without having to incur any direct costs. Um, And so until they see the U.S. do something that they don't expect them to do, I expect the proxy activities to continue. There's a larger question about how we got here. You know, for me, the Middle East, the war in the Middle East, it's kind of the surprise that shouldn't have been a surprise. If you ask me before October 7th, what keeps me up at night is that we cannot have spent 20 years obsessively fighting a war on terror in every corner of the world. Had COVID happen, realized we had a supply chain issue with China, pivot the geopolitical framework towards a tension between the U.S. and China and assume that the terrorists gave up. I couldn't have predicted it would happen in this context, but I am not at all surprised that we find ourselves once again dealing with the reality of violent extremists rearing their ugly head. And I'm not at all surprised that an unconstrained Iran is increasing its activity as a state sponsor of terrorism. What's so interesting about your career and trajectory, and we'll have more in the Fox News Rundown Extra that runs at the weekend, is that... um, all of your experience as somebody in government and then somebody in the tech world and then somebody in finance. And you also have not only the Iranian proxies attacking our troops, but also destabilizing shipping, global shipping. And what are the impacts of that? And can Iran really have plausible deniability that they're not pulling the puppet strings here? 
So Iran doesn't do plausible deniability. Iran does implausible deniability, by the way, much like Vladimir Putin, which is they engage in these proxy attacks. They deny it, but they leave behind enough evidence so that you know that they did it. Mm. Um, and this is all part of their strategy. Right now, if you look at what they're doing, they're basically baiting the United States to attack them directly. Um, they don't think the U.S. will do that. I don't think they want the U.S. to do that. Um, the one thing that I think the administration is probably very much wrestling with right now is out of all the different proxy groups, it's actually Hezbollah that Iran probably has the most control over as a proxy. I think that their control over the Houthis in Yemen is real, but the Houthis are a less organized and disciplined group. Same with the five Shia Arab militias in Iraq, biggest of which is Qatayb al-Hezbollah. Hezbollah Hezbollah in Lebanon is the most disciplined and sophisticated of all these organizations. And if there's a direct confrontation between the U.S. and Iran or Israel and Iran, and it's not done through proxies, it opens up a whole can of worms around the Hezbollah front. And right now, Hezbollah front is something that everybody wants to avoid. So last week, it was reported that our intelligence officials gave Iran a heads up that there was going to be a terrorist attack possibly inside of Iran at the or the recognition of Soleimani's death. And I thought that was very interesting. That And when, what do you think of that? Are we then trying to say, look, we can be cooperative here with you, but if they're, if they're killing Americans, then does that cooperation have to stop? There's very little evidence that cooperation with between the U.S. and Iran under this regime in Tehran has yielded the kinds of results that people want beyond aspirational or mm -hmm. short-lived. Um, you know, I think what's clear is the supreme leader in Iran is in his sort of final years. Who knows if he's sick or how long he'll be on this earth? But you know, this is about legacy for him. Um, there's also a revolutionary mindset. Uh, that exists within the Iranian regime that you see metastasizing throughout the region. What's also sort of a strange, you know, idiosyncrasy of, of, of this is, you know, all of a sudden you have a Shia, per, largely Persian regime in Tehran and Shia Houthis in Yemen and Shia Arabs in Iraq and a Shia Arab militia in, in, in Hezbollah in Lebanon becoming the heroes of, or the sort of symbol of resistance in the Sunni Arab street for the Palestinians in Gaza who are largely Sunni Arabs. And so it's just, it shows you that this is less about religion. Uh, this is less about sect. Um, and it's more about kind of, you know, national, um, you, know, you, know, you know, sort of sovereign activities in the region and dynamics in the region. Then add in for me the complication of Iran being this this close, and I'm um, for those of you who can't see, uh, my fingers are this close <laughs> together, uh, having the capability of a nuclear weapon. Look, at the end of the day, if you look at what Iran has been willing to do with its proxy activities to date, um, you know, anyone who said that if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, so what? The biggest risk of that is proliferation. Or if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, they wouldn't dare use it. Look at what they've been willing to do with their proxies. Again, I go back to my observation that all evidence suggests since October 7th, Iran is pushing the envelope in terms of you know what the red lines are. And again, they're creating this new normal around their proxy activities. I'm not interested, nor should the world be interested in seeing a scenario where that new normal includes a higher likelihood that a nuclear warhead would be passed off to a terrorist group um, or, God forbid, you know, be involved in some kind of tactical activity mm -hmm. on the battlefield. And I think that the two are now more conflated than ever. 
Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you were able to advise the Biden administration, do you feel like you have enough information to recommend what they do? Look, I think that there's a seemingly intractable problem here right now, which is, um, you know, you have, you know, multiple proxy groups in multiple countries, you know, each engaged in, you know, their own agendas. Those agendas are tied to Iran. Um, You have a proliferation problem in Iran and you have an impasse in the war between Israel and Hamas. And my the, the problem right now is those that have the will don't have the capacity to turn the temperature down on this. And those that have the capacity to turn the temperature down don't have the will. And so, you know, like most geopolitical hotspots today, um, the biggest issue is who's going to step in and fill the power vacuum? Who's going to lead? Um, this is one of these moments where, you know, it's presidential shuttle diplomacy. It can't be, you know, diplomatic proxies. This, this has to happen at the highest at the highest level. You wrote a piece not too long ago about geopolitical swing states. And I think people might be interested to hear, like, where do China and Russia come down here? So what's interesting is, so in the Middle East, one of the things that, that, that that's showing itself um, as kind of a new feature of the international system is um, Iran, Russia, and North Korea have kind of come together of this as this axis of destabilization. And you see them, you know, increasingly collaborating in different theaters of the world. Um, if you look at China, to me, we're in the most unstable geopolitical moment we've been in in more than two decades. You know, economists talk about forecasting a soft landing on the economy for 2024. Um, the tensions between the U.S. and China are why we're going to have a hard landing mm-hmm. um, uh, on the geopolitics in 2024. And part of that is the U.S. and China, even though, you know, there's sort of moments where temperatures are cooling, are locked in this competition um, that I think is going to get more complicated for the balance of the decade. Part of that is they're the two winners of globalization, and neither of them are altogether happy with the outcome. So when I talk about geopolitical swing states, there's a whole category of countries um, that are looking at the sort of the international system, and they're seeing the U.S. and China cancel each other out on a number of big issues. And they're looking at their own economic advantages and supply chains, differentiated amount of capital. Maybe they're attractive for nearshoring, offshoring, and friendshoring. And these countries are emerging with their own agendas on the global stage that are independent of Washington and Beijing. And so you're seeing them swing on an issue-by-issue basis. And it has nothing to do with whether they're a democracy or an autocracy. You know, India is kind of, to me, the ultimate geopolitical swing state. World's largest democracy, they stayed neutral on Ukraine, heavily aligned with the U.S. on China. Right. If you look at the countries in the Gulf, you know, they're swinging on an issue by issue basis. And so this is a new feature of the international system where it's not bipolar. You have two you know, dominant powers, but those powers are locked in a type of competition that's creating space for countries to be essentially not non-aligned, but multi-aligned. My last question on this before we turn to your book is Israel. And they find themselves having to fight for their own existence. Uh, after October 7th, and they're in the middle of this region, also watching all of this around them, obviously an active player as well. What do they do next? Well, look, what I would say, this is the first geopolitical test for the Middle East since we moved off of the war on terror, you know, sort of geopolitical paradigm. And what it reveals is that the region has kind of become a tale of two countries, right? You have countries that cannot 
extricate their economic trajectory from the geopolitical baggage of the past. Those are the countries around Israel or that have proxy activities and countries like the Gulf, you know, wealthy Gulf states that are having an economic renaissance that can continue with their economic trajectory regardless. Mm -hmm. Israel is a hybrid of the two. Mm -hmm. Um, And a couple things have happened with Israel. First, um, there's just a major, major paradigm shift post-October 7th, where the idea that you can deter these terrorist organizations in and around um, Israel and the neighboring territories um, is no longer something the population is open to. And anybody that misses that paradigm shift misses another thing, which is that it is perfectly reasonable and highly likely that a significant portion of Israelis can both have challenges with their government and feel emotionally zealous about getting every single one of those hostages back. Mm -hmm. The way in which the hostages who are still at large and have not been brought home feature into Israel's emotional unity and the shift that's happening is going to be an essential part of everything that Israel does going forward. Our mutual friend, Dan Senor, has been here on the Fox News Rundown podcast and is coming again, I think, next week. Uh, He has his own podcast, Call Me Back. We highly recommend it. And he always makes sure that people understand that you you have to understand the mindset of the people of Israel is different today than it was on October 6th. And that's not going to change. And you can't, you, you can wish that that were different. That's not happening. Yeah. One other thing that I would raise, which is a complicating part of this, this war, we, we knew who the spoilers were in the Israel-Palestinian issue before October 7th, and we know who the spoilers are after October 7th. It's, it's the same on, 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 on both sides. There's a new type of spoiler or headwind that we don't spend enough time thinking about, which is the social mediafication of this war means that you have more hours of footage uploaded to all the popular platforms than you have minutes of the entire war itself. And this is injecting identity politics um, into the Arab street, which is complicated for countries like Egypt and Jordan, but it's doing something else, which is it is creating a reservoir of content all over these platforms that exists as a massive, massive vulnerability for a future chapter of mm-hmm. radicalization. Um, and I'd like to remind people that the 9-11 hijackers were radicalized by watching far less footage at a non-algorithmic, uh, in a non-algorithmic right. context right. of what happened in the Balkans in the 90s. Um, so I'm very worried that you combine everything that's been uploaded to social media with some of the migration trends post-COVID into Europe we could really be in for a whole new chapter of homegrown extremism. It must be really something for you who wrote a book on the Rwanda genocide to look at some of these accusations of Israel being accused of genocide. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a function of the, of, the, of the algorithms, though. I mean, what's interesting is even when I go, when I go to the Middle East and I see, you know, you know uh, ministers and, and, and leaders, I ask them, what's the dynamic with your, with your kids in this crisis? And they said, it's interesting. Our, you know, our kids are so young. They actually thought about a lot of things. This was not a crisis or, or, or a sort of theater that they'd ever paid attention to before. Their, their learning of the Israel-Palestinian issue, they said, began on October 7th, and they were sort of algorithmically mm-hmm. told to think about it, what to think about it, and they never mm-hmm. saw the other side. Mm-hmm. So we're even in a different chapter that goes beyond sort of going to the internet and searching and getting, you know, sort of reaffirmation or just getting a sense of what to look at from your friends. This is like a, almost like a post-social media that we were familiar with chapter mm-hmm. that's far more complicated. I'd love to have you back and we can go all around the world with Jared Cohen. We'll just throw him all any country <laughs> and he's going to have an opinion. I want to talk about your book, uh, Life After Power, Seven Presidents and Their Search for Purpose Beyond the White House. This book has so much in it. I'm very excited for it. Let me just give you a chance to 
tell us why you wanted to write it in the first place and how did you choose the presidents that you looked at? So, Dana, my last book was was called Accidental Presidents, and it was about what happens when the president dies in <laughs> office. So once I finished that book and got through my kind of postpartum author depression, um, I wanted to ask the question, what happens when the president survives the office? Um, and I was, you know, it's interesting. It's the last, you know, 50 pages of the sort of long Ron Chernow biographies. And I just wanted to know if there was anything interesting in there. And some of this was informed by the fact that I've always been interested in this question many of us are going to ask our entire lives of like, what do we do next? And you look to entrepreneurs and you look to CEOs and you know, we never look to the presidency in part because we don't think about what happens after they leave office. And what was interesting is when I canvassed the 45 men who've been president 46 times, um, you know, I found that there really were only seven that were even worth talking about. And those seven were very worth talking about because each of them got after this question of what do you do um, you know, after the most dramatic retirement in the world after you've kind of given up what was supposed to be or lost what Mm -hmm. was supposed to be your greatest act. And you take these sort of seemingly unrelatable people, these presidents of the United States, and you basically dig into their biggest vulnerabilities um, when they come back down to earth. And what's left behind is an enormous amount of prescriptions for the rest of us, not just for what to do in retirement, but just how to think about transition in general. It's it's fascinating. And I do want to start with my favorite president, not President Bush 43. He is my actual favorite president. But in history, the George Washington example was so unusual at the time and set America on a very good course for the future about you know, deciding to walk away. That, that, that's right. If, if you think about the George Washington precedent um, of serving two terms, that precedent doesn't get codified until after FDR is elected mm-hmm. for a fourth time you know, with the 22nd Amendment. So to me, that's one of the things that's so remarkable about the American democratic experience. First of all, you know, the founders were worried about what to do with ex-presidents. So Alexander Hamilton, my favorite, is he asked the question in Federalist 72, does it serve the stability of the government and our republic to have half a dozen or so men um, who were elevated to the presidency basically wandering around mm-hmm. the rest of us like discontented ghosts? And if you look at, you know, kind of 200 plus years later, when it came to presidential term limits, we kind of winged it. Um, But to me, the fact that we winged it and presidents gave up power, um, despite the fact that they weren't term limited until the 22nd Amendment, what it tells you is, you know, this idea of former presidents um, is a feature of democracies, not a bug. Mm -hmm. You know, authoritarian systems don't have former presidents, or if they do, they're usually in prison or somewhere else. And so, you know, to me, by the time we get to the 22nd Amendment, this idea of a Washington principle has achieved a status as a norm in and of itself. Um, And even with a 22nd Amendment that limits the president to two terms, what I find is that norm now has an encore um, where it's used as a frame of reference for how former presidents are supposed to behave, which is Mm -hmm. why I think George Bush, you know, George W. Bush or Bush 43 mm-hmm. is such a revered individual today. Yeah. And, and if you had said, I remember talking to um, Marlon Fitzwater, who was the press secretary for Bush 41 and Reagan. And for eight, I can imagine being press secretary for eight years. I mean, can you imagine that? And he admits that like if in the social media world of today that you probably couldn't do it for eight years. But he said that if you had told me on the day that they left office, you know, heads hung in shame, really, that they weren't able to get him a, a second term, that he would be as revered as he was before he died. He said that he never would have believed that that was possible. Um, and I think that there is something to be said about, like, for, with 43, he was like, I 
I'm leaving the Klieglites. I'm not going to be in politics anymore. You're not going to see me opining on all the issues, even though people push and want him, him to do that. He won't do it. But let me back up on one thing. I thought this was interesting. You say that a record 4.1 million Americans are going to hit the retirement age of 65 this year, and that's called the silver tsunami. So a lot of people right now are thinking about this next step in their life. And what can people like that learn from this book? And you could maybe give me a couple of examples. I thought the um, Thomas Jefferson example was an interesting one in terms of turning to academia as a way to serve. Yeah, so the so the the silver tsunami is interesting because it's happening at a time where the whole idea of retirement has changed. Retirement used to actually be a thing where you did it and it was done and you just kind of went home and read books and hung out with your family. In modern times, retire the concept of retirement has evolved into something that looks more like a mirage than a reality. What it means is that career that you've spent your whole life building, at some point you reach the top of what said career was. And you think about what to do next, and there's more life to live mm. after that. And so if you look at the seven presidents that I focused on, you know, each one will relate to a reader in a different way, right? So you know, not everybody is the same. So you know, Thomas Jefferson is a great example for somebody who has viewed themselves as a lifelong founder or a serial entrepreneur. Um, he basically took one of the early ideas he had, which was to found a brand new institution to educate the next generation, to iterate on the flaws of something else great that he founded, which was the Republic, uh, which is why he went on to found UVA. I think John Quincy Adams is interesting because, you know, he's defeated for re-election in 1828, and all he knows how to do is serve. And so he goes on to have a second act, serving nine terms in the House of Representatives. You know, it's interesting, Peter and I, when we lived on Capitol Hill, we would walk our dog over at... Um Congressional Cemetery, and that's where he's buried. He didn't want to be buried anywhere else. He wanted to be buried in the Congressional Cemetery, but that meant more to him. Well, it's it, what's interesting is he had a much greater impact. I mean, John Quincy Adams has one of the greatest pre-presidencies in American history. It's a perfectly architected, you know, first act done by his famous parents that led him to be president. And his presidency was kind of a political stillborn. Uh, but his second act is very different from the first one because in a much lower station, he ends up finding a much higher calling, uh, which is the cause of abolitionism. And, and, and it's John Quincy Adams who takes what was a radical fringe cause of abolition and he mainstreams it. And what's interesting is here's a man who had his first job in the public sector serving in the administration of George Washington. And he dies in 1848 serving alongside a freshman congressman from Illinois named Abraham Lincoln, this mm-hmm. living connection between generations. And I think, again, for the sort of the... the, the you know, those that are going to make a transition, the consistent thread from Jefferson to Adams to Grover Cleveland, Taft, Hoover, Carter, and George W. Bush, I think the reason all seven of them were so successful in their post-presidencies, even though they did it in a very different way, each one of them was very principled about something. There was something just unique to their personality, um, and they get dogmatic about it after they leave office, and whatever they went on to do next ended up being a a manifestation of those core principles. So you mentioned George W. Bush. George W. Bush has reverence for the one president at a time principle. And there's a lot of presidents who talk about one president at a time, but they can't resist the urge to just insert themselves here and there. Out of every single president, George W. Bush is the only one who has completely separated and moved on. He does not mention the name of his successors. He's found a post-presidential voice through painting where he can advocate for his causes without undermining his successors. That's something he's really principled about. Like the books, um, he did the 
portraits of veterans and of immigrants and beautiful books that um, have been highlighted here. I was very interested in the chapter on Herbert Hoover because you think of somebody who had the worst press, right? And he, instead of going home and licking his wounds, he comes back and, and fights. And there were some of the things in here that I didn't even know about Herbert Hoover. And I really admire what he was able to do and hold his head high. So there's so much to unpack about Herbert Hoover. I like I like to to to, to joke that you know somebody needs to make Herbert Hoover great again. Uh, <laughs> so maybe this book will will, will help. Um, Herbert Hoover had one of the greatest pre presidencies of all time. He was the great humanitarian who fed the world after World War One. He led the relief after the Mississippi floods of 1927, where he came to the aid mostly of African Americans, and he was one of the most respected. He basically waltzed into the White House. Um, in 1928, one of the most lopsided victories in history. But here's a man, he lived to be 90 years old, and he's defined by the three and a half years of his presidency post-Great Depression. And so Herbert Hoover is a story for anybody who feels like they achieved great things and their reputation was in tattered. I was thinking about the Me Too movement or the cancel culture of today. Well, and what's interesting is, so I, I call the Herbert Hoover chapter a story of recovery mm-hmm. because there were two things that Herbert Hoover had uh, or three things that he had before the president. He was known as a great executive, right? He had been a self-made millionaire. He was an orphan. He was known as the great humanitarian, and his name meant something significant. Mm-hmm. And when he loses his bid for re-election to FDR in 1932, he spends his 32-year post-presidency trying to recover what he lost. And it's only when he decides he's done trying to win um, back the presidency after the 1940 election that he removes any sense of vanity around his own his own name. And in his lifetime, he again becomes the great humanitarian. He becomes the man who Harry Truman resurrects to feed the world after World War II because mm-hmm. there's only one man in the world who knows what it's like to be president and knows how to feed the world. And so he, 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 he does that for Truman. And then he reorganizes the executive branch uh, for both Truman and Eisenhower. And then in his sort of final chapter, um, you know, he achieves that kind of bipartisan statesman status when Joe Kennedy in 1960 um, calls on Herbert Hoover to reconcile Richard Nixon and JFK to show a united front for the world. Incredible. I mean, an incredible story. And I'm so glad you wrote the book about it because it adds to my thinking. I, I have great respect for the Hoover Institute at Stanford uh, and a lot of friends who work there and there's amazing work that's done out of there. And I just feel like um, I needed to know more about him, and I got that from your book. We haven't mentioned, or you mentioned, but I haven't talked too much about Grover Cleveland because there's a former president right now who is trying to pull a Cleveland, and that would be President Trump to try to win a non-consecutive term. Tell me about Grover Cleveland's sort of trajectory there. Well, first of all, historically, Grover Cleveland was not you know, the first president or the only president to try to make a comeback. But historically, if you look at those that have tried, former presidents have not historically made good presidential candidates. But Grover Cleveland is the only former president until Donald Trump um, to achieve the nomination of a major party. So this is significant, Dana, because this is the fir- this current election is likely going to be the first and only time since 1892 where you have a presidential rematch um, uh, between presidents who are the nominees of the two major parties. It also shows you how off script we've gone in our own political evolution. Um, there's one key difference. Grover Cleveland never lost the popular vote. Um, he wins the popular vote three times. He lost mm. the election in 1888 because he stood on principle and basically took a position on the tariff that was different from the electorate. Mm-hmm. And it ended up being the right decision for the country. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're in, you know, similar Grover Cleveland territory, but we're, 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 we're 
in unique territory in the sense that Donald Trump is likely to be the nominee for the Republican Party on the heels of having lost the popular vote last Mm -hmm. time. Jimmy Carter went into hospice on February 18th of last year. Uh, He's still alive. His wife, Rosalind, died in December. And he did have a pretty amazing post presidency. I don't know if he always believed in the one president at a time rule. I mean, he has ridiculed or not ridiculed. He has insulted <laughs> almost every president that came after him in some way. Sometimes maybe it was principled or not, but I always thought that it was so interesting in that one picture in my mind when President Bush 43 invited Obama as president elect and the other former living presidents. They were all coming for lunch. They all were having um, this photograph together in the Oval Office. And I took Robert Gibbs, the new press secretary, into the Oval Office with me to watch this picture being taken. And, and Everybody was standing pretty close together, except for Jimmy Carter, who was standing just about two feet off to the side. If you can see the picture, if you Google it, it's so interesting because I thought, here is somebody who everybody in the room had insulted each other at some point, but only one person had insulted all of them, (laughs) and it had been Jimmy Carter. But what a life and legacy when it comes to humanitarian causes. So if you think, so Jimmy Carter's example is an incredible, he's sort of the founding father of the post-presidency, right? So if Herbert Hoover was the one who emerged as, you know, a not quiet ex-president who, you know, acted as an elder statesman, Jimmy Carter's the one who basically looked at that and built proper infrastructure around it. He essentially created a whole post-presidential administration. And if you think back to Alexander Hamilton's concern about ex-presidents, you know, wandering around like discontented ghosts, the answer to, 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 to Hamilton's concern is that ex-presidents can either be tremendous allies to their successors or formidable adversaries and critics of their successors. And Jimmy Carter did both. So he he was consistently a partner and a thorn in the side of all of his successors. And two of my favorite examples of this um, are, you know, when, when George H.W. Bush is, is getting ready to, 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 you know, launch the invasion of Iraq to get Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, Jimmy Carter decides to take it upon himself to write to the different members of the permanent members of the Security Council, basically telling them to go against U.S. policy. Or when Bill Clinton sends Jimmy Carter to North Korea in 1994, he knows enough to tell Carter um, that you're a messenger. You're not instructed or authorized to make any policy. And what happens? He turns on CNN and Carter's announcing an entire nuclear deal that he's negotiated. But Jimmy Carter also cured guinea worm. Jimmy Carter pioneered modern day election monitoring and has done a tremendous amount to advance democracy around the world. So in many respects, he, 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 he represents the modern post-presidency. And he represents this idea that even if we want ex-presidents to go away, we still care what they think. They still exert an enormous amount of leverage. And in modern times, the ex-presidency is a treasure. But it's also America's burden of responsibility. And while we don't vote for ex-presidents, we can respond to the things that they do and don't do. So when Carter wrote his infamous book, Peace Not Apartheid, there was a backlash. Mm -hmm. And that backlash represents kind of a normative checks and balances on the sort of inherent power that an Mm ex-president possesses. Too soon to write about Obama? My view is um, Obama left office one of the youngest presidents in history. If I look at the seven presidents that I write about, you know, Thomas Jefferson doesn't achieve 
the third volume in his life trilogy, which is the founding of UVA until he's 82 years old. And remarkable that he lived yeah. that long at that at, at that time. I had to use generative AI to create a <laughs> uh, what a photo of him would have looked like. And, and my view is Obama still has a lot of time. I, it's not clear to me yet mm-hmm. what the sense of purpose is. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also doing what a lot of ex-presidents do in chapter one, which is... Um, a lot of different things. A lot of different things. Right. I think we have to give them the space to figure yeah. it out. He has a following. He has a mandate. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's too soon to know. Any last piece of advice before I get to these short questions here, uh, a little lightning round, uh, for these people who are thinking about their next step, is there a pattern of purpose, whether it be volunteering or is it hobbies or is is there something that, so anybody listening to this who might have a parent or if they're listening and they're also thinking about what their next step is, that there's hope and purpose in getting up every day and having something to do. So I think there's a couple takeaways that I find that are consistent threads across really seven very different case studies. Um, First of all, read the book. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, uh, there's something in there for everyone. But the first is if you're making that transition, understand what your most core values are and what you're most principled about. And you know your your sort of your 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 retirement gives you an opportunity to pursue those principles in ways that you didn't have the bandwidth or time before, where maybe you were constrained. The second is, um, you know, I think a lot of presidents make a big mistake, which is the pace of that kind of ultimate act is so significant that once you leave it, um, you know, there's sort of an inclination to jump right into the next thing. The most successful post presidencies began with a period in which you kind of organize your life, get used to the new pace. Um, it's a mistake to jump right in. Having at least a year of transition and breathing room, it's counterintuitive, but incredibly important. And then I think the third thing that's so important um, is having an endless learning experience. Yeah. One of the things that comes with leaving what you think is the most important job you'll ever have is you get closer to mortality. And George W. Bush you know, you know, offered a lot of wisdom for me on this, which is in the chapter, which is, look, he loves mountain biking and he loves running. Eventually, his knees won't let him do it, do either. But painting is something that he's taken on. And he, he basically says, look, it's an endless learning experience. You know, I can be in a wheelchair. I can be immobile and I can still paint until the day that I die. And having that endless learning experience is something that gives you an excuse to wake mm-hmm. up every single day, keep your mind moving. Um, if you just hold on to, you know, sort of, you know, the relics of your, your, your previous chapter, eventually you age out of it. Um, and so finding a timeless learning experience to keep you going is one of the things that I think is key to the longevity of these presidents. I mean, Herbert Hoover wrote, I think, like 38 books or something, maybe more. Um, he lived to be 90 years old. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. All is great. Okay, are you ready for some yes. short questions, Jared? All right. What is one thing you wish you knew when you were younger? Uh, who shot JFK? <laughs> That's a good one. Do you do you have a theory? Um you know, I've watched too many movies, and my my um, so so I, I've I've lost the ability to be oh. objective. My husband laughs at I can't remember who said it. He's gonna probably get to. He'll remind me when he hears this. But he said the uh, oh it was it was Jim Wilkinson uh, who was a colleague of mine in the Bush administration. He said the longer I work in government, the more sure I am that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone because we can't coordinate anything <laughs> to get it right. Uh, why do you think it is important to study history? If you look at sort of tech and entrepreneurship, everything has gotten so focused on the forward and the future. Um, Everything problematic that happens in the future um, has roots in something that happened in the past. And we need to understand where we came from in order to understand where we are today and where we're going. Charles Krauthammer used to tell people 
when they were thinking about what to study in college, you said, always study history. And it, you'll, it will always serve you well, and it helps you become a better writer, of which here we have evidence of that in Life After Power. Um, I think your career is pretty incredible. I mentioned that you went from government to tech to finance or probably something else along the way. You've written books through all of those um, different sectors of your career. What is the best advice to someone who is transitioning careers or industries? I mean, for me, it's been choose your next job um, based on who you want to work with and for and have them create a job for you that doesn't exist. Is there a question you think every manager should ask in a job interview? Um how can I have more of a growth mindset and how can I manage myself um, in addition to my management responsibilities? You are the father to three beautiful young girls. What is your favorite thing about being a girl dad? There's all these parts of their socialization process that just as like a male growing up were never part of my life. (laughs) Like I never played with dolls. I never, Mm -hmm. you you know, I never sort of did ballet. And so I'm experiencing things for the first time with them. Um, and I have to participate because like I'm their dad. Yes. Yeah. They're, and they're, they are beautiful. Are you pessimistic or optimistic about artificial intelligence? Um, I don't, I try not to take a binary view of AI because it's the, look, it's the most significant technology created since the invention of the internet. And it's going to create a layer on top of our world and we're going to inherit all the good and the bad. So I think that we, you know, we need to approach problems the way that we've always approached them, but artificial intelligence needs to be part of that. What is your favorite or most used app on your phone? Ooh, um, probably, I mean... I mean, these days it's my stopwatch because I've been doing a lot of planks. Um, okay, I love but, it. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Okay, good. We have a stopwatch here, but we're going to keep going and ignore it. Um, if you could invite any three presidents, living or deceased, to a dinner party, who would they be? Theodore Roosevelt, uh, Thomas Jefferson, and James Garfield. Do you think they'd all get along? I think Theodore Roosevelt... <laughs> His history has made him into an easier person to deal with mm-hmm. than is the reality. Theodore Roosevelt in an era of social media would be a very difficult human being to fathom. <laughs> Indeed. Okay. My last question is this. What is a piece of advice that you've been given that you find yourself passing on to others more and more? You know, so I'll, give, I'll actually give you one from from the book. And and again, it comes from from Bush 43 because I thought I was writing a book about retirement and I ended up writing a book just about how to be introspective about life. And what's interesting is George W. Bush is like the least introspective person I know, but yet this is very introspective advice, which is um, we're obsessed with this idea of legacy, uh, whether we say so explicitly or not. And he views it as a dirty word. He views it as um, a selfish word. And this idea that we basically, you know, avoid the present for the future if you can just remind yourself how illogical that is over and over and over again, you end up enjoying friends, family, and work so much more. Now, like honestly, ever since writing this book, I go to work and people ask me what I what I want to do next. And it's like, honestly, I worked with really smart people. I worked on interesting things. I had an impact today. I'm going to go to sleep tonight. And what's next? I want to wake up and do it all over again. It's Maybe that's age. I mean, I, you're a little younger than me, but I 
also had that experience with President Bush. When we were leaving the White House those last sort of three months, any interview he was about to go and do, I would give him the heads up, like, hey, sir, just don't, just remember, they're going to ask you, what do you think your legacy will be? And he would say, Dana, do you know that last year I read three books about George Washington? And if the first, if the historians are still analyzing the first president, then the 43rd doesn't have a lot to worry about because he will never know. And I thought that was really interesting, and I agree. Somebody was complaining about the weather the other day, and I said, I'll take it. I'll take whatever weather it is. I just want to be here and experience this. And I'm at a point, too, in my life, especially here, I've never been happier at Fox doing what I'm doing, that I'm not worried about what's next. I'm just confident that it'll be all right. I, I think that's so so well said. Yeah, Great. Thanks for being here. All right. Thanks, Dana. Okay. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.